Welcome back to the program. Few products are more American than bourbon. In fact, some argue that the Kentucky spirit is the American experience distilled and sealed in a bottle. While the English have their Scotch and Irish whiskey, the Latin Americans their rum, and Mexico its cervezas, Kentucky bourbon is our defining drink. What does this drink say about our character as a nation, and how does this history apply to America today? We're going to talk about this with my guest, Dane Hucklebridge. He holds a degree in history as well as a certificate in Latin American studies from Princeton. And it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about bourbon, a history of the American spirit. Dane Hucklebridge, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about how you personally got interested in really digging into the history of bourbon. Well, I think probably like many Americans, it was something that was always always present growing up in, in, in arts and media. It was just one of those things that was so much a part of the experience of being an American that I guess in a way you almost take it for granted. And I, I've always enjoyed it and, you know, always always been around it, but it never really occurred to me to, to look deeper and write a book about it until uh, almost a couple of years ago. I was with my agent, and I was really interested in doing a cultural history of something distinctly American. And I had a few ideas that, that weren't so great in hindsight, and we were sitting sitting in his backyard sipping on, sipping on bourbon, and he said, well, why don't, you know, we drink enough bourbon back here, why don't we do a book about this? And, you know, we both laughed, but then thinking about it, it really made sense. And, again, like I said, it's one of those things that's so much a part of our experience that you do kind of take it for granted. When I started looking in the history and reading all the stories behind it, it was just jaw-dropping how closely it paralleled American history and how integral it was in our own national story. And that was when I realized that it was something I really wanted to do. And as you write about the history, it becomes clearer why it is such a defining American drink, both in terms of of how it's made, how it evolved here, and really what it represented at its earliest time. Exactly. And I think really the crucial thing that that jumped off the page right away when I was when I started really doing research is just that it's such a great analogy for the American experience because you have an old world technique distilling, you have a new world grain, corn, which was cultivated by Native Americans for thousands of years, and you have these two things joining on the frontier, this new new frontier that was opened up and creating something really new and distinct and original. And that, for me, that that is a pretty good analogy for the American experience, this idea of the old world and the new you know, mingling and creating something in this new environment that the world had never seen before. So that's why I think even that basic level works so well, that analogy. And talk a little bit about its origins and this frustration, even in the earliest days, that the supplies of scotch and Irish whiskey were not as not plentiful enough, so there was a need for something else. Yeah, definitely. So in, in looking at the history and, you know, really what we think of it of as Kentucky bourbon definitely comes from Kentucky. But the first instances, if you're going to look at its origins, of European colonists making alcohol from corn, I found the first mentions going all the way back to Jamestown, you know, back in the early 1600s. And so that was, as far as I can tell, the first the first instance in which European colonists who, who drank a lot of alcohol back then, they were very suspicious of water, which is sort of an interesting historical fact and probably made sense because oftentimes the water they drank was polluted. They drank quite a bit of alcohol. And being on the other side of the Atlantic in those days, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't 
an easy trip to to keep replenishing their stock of beers and spirits and wines, and they really have this desperate need to to start making their own alcohol in the new world. And that's where you see the first instances of colonists realizing, hey, you know, this this stuff's hard to get, but we have all this Indian corn here. Maybe we should try doing that. And that is where I found, anyway, the first references to making an alcoholic drink out of corn, which is really how bourbon began. And talk about some of the earliest distillation of it and how that went. Well, distillation, the technique of taking a drink that's low in alcohol, like wine or beer, and, and you know, essentially cooking it and collecting the vapor and recondensing it into something that's stronger, that's been around since the Middle Ages, you know, since medieval times. Um, that that technique was brought to America by the first settlers, and they learned very quickly to start making the same whiskeys from, from Ireland and Scotland and Europe from the Old World using grains that they grew here. And you had quite a bit of rye, which was an Old World grain, but they also figured out relatively early that you could do the same thing with corn. And that's where this corn whiskey came about. And rye whiskey and corn whiskey were were both present in those early days of colonialism although they had a hard time competing with rum later on because in the colonial era, British had a, had a ton of rum coming up from the Caribbean and it was easy to dump it on the American colonies and, and they had a ready market. So that was one of the early struggles that, uh, that whiskey faced in, in terms of becoming a, a national spirit. And what do we know about the qualities of the very first bourbon that was distilled? Well, early bourbon would not have been aged typically the way we think of it. It, it was corn liquor. When you think of moonshine, and moonshine and bourbon both have a common origin in that small farmers on the frontier, especially particularly once settlers crossed the Appalachians and, and moved into Kentucky and Tennessee, they they would take use their extra corn, which they often had a surplus of, and there wasn't really a ready market for it there, and it was too expensive to haul over the mountains or elsewhere. But the easy thing to do with it and make a little money was to make whiskey out of it. But the whiskey they were making, this corn spirit, would have been clear and unaged and essentially moonshine as we think of it. But what happened was when they were shipping it off to other markets, it often went on the Ohio River to the Mississippi and then down to New Orleans and from there would be shipped to ports everywhere. It spent a lot of time in these oak barrels that they were using, which in some cases were charred. And it became very clear you know, pretty early on that the whiskey that had spent time in these barrels aging and picking up the, the flavors of the wood and the char tasted a heck of a lot better than the raw, clear stuff that was coming out of the still. And that's really when it caught on, when people started realizing, like, hey, this this corn whiskey from Kentucky that spent time in these charred oak barrels tastes pretty good. That That's essentially when bourbon came about. And that would have been First in the late 1700s, but really in the early 1800s, too. That period of time was when what we think of as Kentucky bourbon came into being. And where did the name bourbon come from? Well, it's funny. And and in Kentucky, you may notice there's a lot of these French names for towns and cities and counties. And that was because in the immediate wake of the revolution, there was a tremendous gratitude for France because they really helped us out quite a bit in our war with England to get our independence. And as sort of a, a show of affection, I guess, a lot of these counties and towns were received French names, and one of which was Bourbon. And today, Bourbon County is small, and they don't really do much whiskey making there. But once upon a time, the region, that a whole huge region in central and eastern Kentucky was called, you know, Bourbon County or Old Bourbon, this Bourbon region. And that's where a lot of early whiskey was made. So when these barrels showed up, you know, in markets in New Orleans or even on the east coast of the U.S., 
people said, oh, this whiskey's good. Where is it from? It's from it's from bourbon. And whiskey tends to pick up the name of its origin, like Scotch whiskey or Irish whiskey, or they used to call the rye from Pennsylvania, Monongahela, after where it was from. And, you know, it picked up its place of origin, bourbon. Talk a little bit about the founding fathers, particularly George Washington, and their involvement in, in the spirits business, essentially. Sure. Well, when the revolution took hold, suddenly the colonies were, were blockaded by England. We couldn't get this rum that we'd been dependent on for so long. And that's when the idea of making our own whiskey, our own alcohol from, from our own native grains really took hold. And Benjamin Franklin mentions it in the Poor Richard Almanac about this need to, to start creating spirits from our own native corn. And one of the, you know, the, one of the founding fathers of the American whiskey industry, interestingly enough, was George Washington at Mount Vernon, after his presidency, he was convinced by a Scottish caretaker who was helping him out with the farm there to start making whiskey. And he used both rye and corn. The recipe, unfortunately, doesn't survive. It was probably, in most cases, more rye whiskey than corn whiskey, but he did do both, and either blending or separate. You know, it's not exactly clear. but you know, And he, he ended up creating a large commercial distillery in Mount Vernon, one of the biggest in the country, if not the biggest, that introduced to the Virginia planter class this sort of what had been sort of a fringe frontier beverage. So he wasn't just the founding father of our country. He was a founding father of American whiskey. What was the equipment like back then? And tell us a little bit how it evolved over time as, as really the needs became more sophisticated. Sure, sure. I mean, that's a great question. The Early on, what you had were copper pot stills. And they would have been you know, these small farmers crossing the mountains and, and settling. They would have had pretty small portable stills. Think of almost like a, a kitchen pot with a field at the top with a coil coming off. They would not have been big or complicated affairs. And, you know, for a long time, that's what whiskey was. It was, it was, it was this small-time, small-farm drink. And also, too, it started to move to grist mills. So if farmers took their grain to mills, there'd be a small still set up next to it. Gradually, those became bigger, and these small portable, you know, pot stills became became established set places where there were still pot stills, though, but they would be, you know, embedded in brick, and, you know, almost you're starting to see something almost like a small factory evolving. And then really in the Industrial Revolution, that's when things took off, and that's when you start seeing, instead of just pot stills, these large continuous or column stills which are more complicated and could run a continuous stream of wash or the beer you put into a still to make whiskey. And then the output increased tremendously once you had these technological advances. Talk a little bit about the impact that Prohibition had. Well, it's interesting. Prohibition, it, there's a little bit of a conflict. It sort of had two effects. In terms it gave bourbon the chance to really have an impact on national culture. When you look at jazz, you know, it was the jazz age and bourbon was very, you know, very much a part of that. Speakeasies, bourbon was a part of that. The literature, the lost generation, you know, they were all big bourbon drinkers. So it, it gave it, a, it gave bourbon a chance to really shine and contribute to the, to the social life of our country at the time. But it was also pretty harmful for the industry because a lot of these distilleries shut down only a handful were able to stay in business, and that's because of medicinal permits. And the one loophole for alcohol was it was almost like the medicinal marijuana of the age. If you had a prescription from a doctor, you could get bourbon. So really, it really harmed the industry. All these distilleries essentially went out of business for the most part, had to find other ways, these families that ran them to survive. And then after Prohibition, 
it was really tough for them to get back on their feet again because they hadn't been making whiskey in you know however many years, and you need time to age whiskey. So there was no whiskey around. They didn't have the money to start up again, and there was no existing age whiskey. So even if they got going, it would still take time to make more. So it was really hard, and, and it did trim down the number of distilleries considerably, and it did have an effect on the quality of whiskey because during you know during the Depression, when they were trying to get back on their feet and struggling, as was the rest of America, they needed to turn a profit so the, the whiskey that was coming out then wasn't really as the same quality as before. So it did have a harmful effect on it as well. And what about the defining brands within the world of bourbon? Jim Beam, which was originally, as you talk about it, Jake Beam and Jack Daniels. Sure. Well, it's interesting because they seem almost mythological figures, which in some way, in some way they are, but they were also real people, both Jack Daniels and, well, Jim Beam was certainly real, but the original settler who, who came to Kentucky was, I believe, Johannes Jakob Beam, and he was a, a German immigrant, which, you know, which, which is fascinating because you think of whiskey as, as a, you know, predominantly a Scots-Irish in origin, but it did have, you know, it is a pan-American drink and many different immigrants were involved. And he, you know, he settled in Kentucky. Jack Daniels lived in Tennessee. And their, their stories are fascinating. I mean, Jack Daniels, after the Civil War, at a very young age, was essentially orphaned and penniless. And uh, a neighbor who had a still and kind of did some whiskey making on the side introduced him to it. And as a teenager, I believe, he, he started his own whiskey business that gradually grew into Jack Daniels. In Kentucky, uh, this Jake Beam, the Americanized version, started creating a whiskey. It was known as Old Tub originally, or Old Jake Beam. And yeah, his descendants on down the line kept up the tradition even today. There's, you know, Jim Beam is still, you know, it might be owned by Centauri, but it's still in many ways a family business of how involved the Beams are in the whiskey making in the area. Not just that Jim Beam, but their Beams, you know, scattered throughout the industry. Is it your sense that bourbon still is kind of the American drink, that it still represents the American ethos even today? I, I, I believe it is, and it's, it's had its ups and downs, just, just as, as we as a country have, but right now it's doing very well. We're in the midst of what I would call a bourbon renaissance, where after a few decades of, of bourbon you know, being sort of forgotten about to a certain extent, it's really popular now, and you see it just in the sales, and there's a billion-dollar bourbon boom, is, you know, according to the cover of Fortune magazine a couple a couple months ago. It's a uh, you know it's very stylish at the moment. They're they're very trendy, very high-class bars and restaurants opening up even here in New York City that specialize in bourbon. So it's it's become across the board from all different groups very popular at the moment, and it's thriving. And I, I have a hunch, you know, these ups and downs will continue, but it's still at the moment. I think Americans are very interested in rediscovering you know, this heritage to some extent that has been lost and this age that's very global and mass-produced, people really want to find something that, that has a sense of place and a sense of, sense of identity and feels real. And bourbon, bourbon's as real as it gets in terms of our own history. There's a particular irony in thinking about bourbon, given its roots, given its history, some of the things we've been talking about, of bourbon becoming trendy in an, in an urban sense. It's sort of antithetical to its roots, and yet sort of an interesting evolution. It, it certainly is. And one thing you'll find looking at the history, though, is it's not a new thing. I mean, it started as, even I mentioned George Washington, it started as a frontier kind of scrappy frontier drink that, you know, most higher class people probably wouldn't touch. And George Washington was one of the people who helped introduce it to the sort of Virginia aristocrats. 
so you know that's an, an instance of it going up uh, at times in the industrial revolution it its quality was severely diminished because the the capacity produced in these sort of factory distilleries decreased the quality of it and its reputation was harmed and it was again sort of thought of as a as a you know kind of lower class undesirable drink but then in the I don't know, I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit. In the post-war years, after World War II, it became, you know, the sort of spirit to have at cocktail parties in suburban homes, and it became, you know, as, as a part of the establishment as it could get. So you see over the history of these ups and downs, and I think fortunately for, for bourbon at the moment, there is this interest among many Americans to, to rediscover those roots, the sort of, the sort of, you know, more, and whether it's, whether this nostalgia is real or not, you know, who knows, but... uh this this sort of more more authentic, more quote unquote real parts of our you know our sort of folkloric past, which is I, I think part of the reason bourbon's doing good. What impact has it had on other spirits, particularly Scotch and rye, and some of the other things that were popular for a while that have gone into descendancy while bourbon has be, bourbon has become trendy? Sure. Well. It's interesting in a way, because bourbon today is an international business. It's exported all over the world, consumed everywhere. But it certainly gained respect internationally. And one, one of the interesting things I, I found is that bourbon barrels, which you can only use new barrels to make bourbon, so Kentucky has tons of these leftover barrels, ironically, we send a lot of them back to Scotland, where Scotland buys them from us and uses them to age scotch, because they, they you know, Actually, the the factor of using these barrels that have you know some that have been seasoned by the bourbon actually makes the scotch better. So in a way, that's that's an interesting angle. Overall, I I think I think there's probably enough room for most you know most spirit connoisseurs or even just you know amateur spirit fans like me for for bourbon along with the other the other array of of whiskeys and cognacs or rums or tequilas, what have you. So I, I think I feel like it's kind of, at the moment, globally joining the, the pantheon, so to speak, of great global spirits. And are there more small producers coming along that are handcrafting the artisanal bourbon at this point? Yes, definitely. I mean, this is probably one of the, the new and in some ways most exciting developments is that Whiskey making at one time wasn't unique just to a certain part of the country. It was really sort of a pan-American activity. It was a way of farmers, you know, farmers getting rid of, as I said, their extra grain. And it wasn't just whiskey. It was brandies and, and other sorts of liqueurs as well. That sort of died out, and prohibition was almost the nail in the coffin for that practice. But what you're seeing today is, is American distilling regaining its native range. And a lot of these small distilleries are cropping up. And you're seeing bourbons, not just in Kentucky, but even, you know, here in New York, there's one in, in Brooklyn and there's some upstate, which I'm sure real traditionalists maybe might find it odd, but it is introducing the bourbon, the bourbon drink and its heritage and spirit to, you know, to a whole new group of people. So this idea of craft distilling is something that's really catching on. And it's, it's a little behind what you would think of like craft brewing, which which picked up a little bit earlier, but it's in the same spirit. This idea to to reconnect to something that's that's more locally produced, artisanally crafted, and you know has that sense of authenticity to it. Dane Hucklebridge, the book is Bourbon: A History of the American Spirit. Dane, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 